I'm Antonia Ferrier, Vice President for External Affairs at the International Republican Institute, and your host. This is By the People. The road to democracy and freedom is paved with knowledge. Freedom is not the sole prerogative of a lucky few, but the inalienable and universal right of all human beings. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people. What does it mean to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? This immortal line from the Gettysburg Address captures the essence of the American project that Abraham Lincoln was fighting to preserve, a representative government accountable to all its citizens, a self-governing people committed to the pursuit of liberty, and a nation of laws reflecting the will of the people. It was these ideals that led to the founding of the International Republican Institute 40 years ago this month. IRI is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to helping our partners on the ground in more than 100 countries around the world to foster the infrastructure of democracy through programs strengthening healthy political parties, electoral integrity, the rule of law, and political participation for all citizens. When IRI was founded, the Cold War was raging and the Soviet Union appeared to be immovable. Today, we face more diffuse but dangerous threats to freedom worldwide, with authoritarian powers increasingly working together to undermine or destroy democracy. But around the world, people are fighting back. IRI is privileged to work on the front lines of the fight to not just defend democracy, but to advance it globally. And we want to share the inspiring stories of remarkable people dedicating their lives to building a better, freer future for their countries. With this new podcast, we'll delve into the stories of freedom fighters everywhere, from Ukraine to Venezuela, Taiwan to Nigeria. We'll look at the grave challenges facing global democracy, as well as the bright spots where democratic institutions are taking root. In this inaugural episode, we'll hear from the incredible Kaya Kallis, Prime Minister of Estonia and the first woman to hold that position, as well as a staunch defender of freedom, and particularly of Ukraine since Vladimir Putin's invasion began last year. I'll also sit down with IRI's President Dan Twining to reflect on IRI's 40 years of advancing democracy and the relevance of our mission to the many challenges facing the free world today. Now let's dive in. Prime Minister Kallis, thank you for being here. So exciting to have you as the first woman Prime Minister of Estonia. Um, curious, what got you into politics? Well, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a long story, but uh, I uh, actually vowed that I will never go into politics because uh, <laughs> when I uh, finished high school, uh, then I decided that I will take up something that none of my, uh, I mean, family members have done. So I went into law in order to become a number one in that regard because I didn't really want to be compared to anybody. 
but I guess it is in your blood. So uh, I started very, very early. I mean, we had the times when we uh, got our uh, independence back. So all the market economy and everything, I did the privatizations as, as a lawyer, as a very young lawyer. So by the age of 27, I was partner in the biggest law firm. <laughs> Well, I really worked a lot, and and uh, my counterparts in other countries were 63 at that time. Uh, so I worked myself up in a in another law firm as well uh, to become a partner. But then uh, I I I was in a in a place where I was playing golf like really a lot, and I thought that this is not the life that uh, you would have in in 33. Uh, years old <laughs> for the rest of your life. But I then also started to to see what is wrong with the laws and what should be better and write articles about this and give speeches. And then they said that, oh, we would need people like you in politics. So I was like, oh, oh, no, 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 I will never go to politics. No, I, <laughs> because my father was a politician or is a politician. And I was like, they are always going to compare me to him and I don't want that. But I guess it is in your blood. Then after uh, two years of this, uh, a lot of that you should go. I said, OK, I'd try. Uh, I run um, uh, in the elections and see what what comes out of it. And so I got the personal mandate done on my first uh, uh, test. So <laughs> there I am, actually. So is there, when you think back of your life, now you're prime minister, are there any things you think about when you first started out in politics that you wish the knowledge you have now that you might have had then? Um, I mean, I, uh, you know, I think I've learned on the way a lot. Uh, but I have, uh, in the beginning, I took very cautious steps because I know, I said that I know law very well. But I actually don't know politics. I have to learn the job because I got a lot of votes. And, and then the prime minister immediately asked me to be a minister. Uh, and I said that, whoa, 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 I don't really know this. Uh, so I, I start in the parliament and, and, and work myself up there. And I think that was a that was a wise decision. But actually coming to the gender issue, then as a lawyer, um, you know, people appreciate you for the advice that you're giving and nobody questioned my gender. Whereas when I went to politics, it was all about this. Uh, and that is very uncomfortable. It's like uh, not you being <laughs> you, but you being a woman. Yes. Um, and, and questions I, I, I got I mean, the men never get those questions as a prime minister as well. I mean, I've been asked five times and I'm keeping the count. Have you cried as a prime minister? It's like, have you ever asked that question from a man? And then the journalist like, no, why? It's like, yeah, but why are you, you asking, asking me? me? Exactly. Well, you know, there's a former Speaker of the House, John Boehner. He used to cry all the time. So exactly, that I've seen guys he crying. Has cry. So not saying that women should or do no. cry more than not, but there are just these stereotypes that still yeah. exist. We get examined for what we wear, and, our hair, and also uh, also undermining the the I mean the self uh, all the time or questioning you. I mean, when I, I became the party leader and we had the elections coming and, and I got these questions all the time that, so what kind of 
experience you have in order to become a leader. And I took my CV. I mean, I've been in private practice for 14 years. I've been, I mean, in the European Parliament, in the Estonian Parliament, uh, having different leadership positions, speaking five languages, and, and comparing my CV to the CVs of guys, which were like, my first uh, uh, position is a member of parliament, and second is the minister. It's like, and you're questioning me, uh -huh. but they always question me. So it was like, it was kind of insulting in this regard, uh, why these questions are posed to me. But then I also thought that it's because, you know, uh, we didn't have women in that position. So for people, it was kind of awkward. <coughs> and I, I got this sort of advice from very good people is like, like who wanted well for me, said that, you know, wear trousers, um, speak with a lower voice. Yep. I mean, maybe glasses uh, to make you look smarter, cut your hair, um, uh, gain weight. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I thought that, you know, all this comes from the place that, you know, they're trying to picture you in the leadership position and they think that there's something wrong with you. You don't really fit through that gingerbread, right. you know, form. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just from a different gender. That's right. <laughs> and that is, and I, I've always been a very feminine uh, um, woman uh, and I'm not changing who I am nope. to be more um, convincing. And, and guess what? You can be feminine and tough. They're not mutually exclusive. You exactly. can be both. Exactly, exactly. So, so I don't have to be somebody that I'm not. Um, uh, I mean, but so it's interesting, you know. Thinking about, you know, I, I don't want to overly generalize, but I mean, the Baltics, I mean, have had a lot of incredibly powerful women since the fall of the Soviet Union. This goes up uh, into Scandinavia a bit. We've seen, you know, Maya Sandu down in, I call it mighty Moldova. Moldova. Mm -hmm. um, there is this almost incredible sea change of incredible women leaders across Europe. Do you think this is, will the question of gender be taken off the table more and more, or do you think it's still going to be there? Uh, I am afraid it's still going to be there. Uh, so, I mean, uh, we haven't had a lot. I mean, I'm the first one. Uh, the Latvians now have the second one. Uh, uh, we, female, uh, Lithuanians have the first one. Yeah. Uh, so, so and, and it is still very tough uh, to bring uh, women as ministers um, to, to leadership positions. Uh, I mean, my first, I'm now in my third government, so in my first two governments I had uh, uh, equally uh, you know uh, half women half men that is the first time in Estonia but now the third government it is funny we have the coalition governments so you have the two parties that were really like really criticizing me for not being uh, enough uh, promoting women and all although I had always like more women on my side in the in the party uh, in the in the government. But, uh, but then when it was their turn to appoint nominees, they uh, appointed two men and one woman. It's like, put your money where your, your mouth, mouth is. is. Amen. I want to turn to Russia because I know it was just said that Estonia has given more per capita in support of Ukraine than any other country, and that's an incredible statistic. 
think something that Americans don't really appreciate is that in Estonia, you grew up for a good portion of your life as a Soviet, in a Soviet republic. And what was it like growing up under Soviet mm. occupation? And what was it like getting your freedom and uh. carry that forward to the fight in Ukraine? Yeah. Um, you know, the smart people have said that you only understand freedom when it's taken from you. So I come from a lucky generation that didn't have freedom. So we got freedom. So I don't take it for granted. I understand that uh, that uh, it is fragile and, and it is not uh, there uh, for granted. You have to care for it. Um, uh, and my grandparents' generation is actually the opposite of mine, which mean, meant that they had everything. They had the prosperity, they had the freedom, they had choices, they had all the world open to them. Everything was taken from them. Right. So I think that my generation owes to my grandparents' uh, generation uh, that we are fighting this and this never to happen again to anybody in the world. And that's why what is happening in Ukraine is like from our history books, what our grandparents lived through. And therefore it gives, you know, this, that, uh, that we don't want this uh, to uh, anybody else because we have suffered that. But uh, I mean, but the journeys uh, has been interesting and, and, uh, you know, I had to explain my life, and I'm not that old, I, I think. Oh, I, hope. I am older than you, but we won't talk <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, but but the, but point being that I was born under Soviet occupation. Yeah. Then when I was a teenager, we, I, I, you know, the Estonia became free. Then when I was university, uh, you know, law student, we basically, the students were the ones who are drafting all the laws. And so I was also, you know, there when the... The market economy started and and all the work and and investments poured in and and so it has all been during my lifetime which is a, a incredible journey so far it is an incredible journey um madam prime minister thank you thank you very much now let's go have a cocktail yeah thanks <laughs> I would like to welcome Dan Twining, the president of IRI, to our inaugural podcast. Um, there's a lot to think about when it comes to democracy, Dan, and we're in our 40th anniversary year as an institute, part of the NED families. Just wondered if you could reflect on 40 years, why was IRI created and what impact has it had? Thanks, Antonio. I'm very happy to be here. So. You look out at the world and the news is a bit grim, right? War in the Middle East, war in Europe, the threat of war in Asia, mass migration and refugee flows, uh, inequality, injustice, it's tough out there. Uh, but it was also tough in 1983 when Ronald Reagan and the US Congress founded IRI and the National Endowment for Democracy. The Soviet empire controlled half the world. America was suffering from hyperinflation. There was, we had had the 70s era of malaise. And Ronald Reagan was a visionary optimist who understood that people everywhere want the same things that we aspire to right here, which is freedom, including religious freedom, including individual liberty, including opportunity for our children, hope for a better future. And uh, that was the promise that he laid out when he created these democracy institutes 
to go out and help do bottom-up work, to help people empower themselves, to govern themselves uh, justly and responsibly, and create real democratic opportunity and dignity all over the world. And it worked. I mean, it's not perfect, but most of the world, more than 80% of people, lived under dictatorship when IRI was formed. You could count the number of democracies on your hands and toes. Uh, that's really different now, right? There are over 100. Uh, more people in Asia live under democracy than anywhere in the world, despite the weird propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party. Everyone in Europe, including in Ukraine, wants to get as far away from possible as possible from the Russian Empire, despite the fact that Putin's authoritarian aggression is uh, trying to destroy Ukraine. Uh, in the Middle East, you see Arab countries rejecting the violence of Hamas. So people everywhere want the kind of future that Ronald Reagan laid out 40 years ago. So you're a bit of a happy warrior then, Dan. We have a lot of work to do, but you know, Antonia, um, it's very empowering working at IRI because we work with partners in more than 100 countries in very tough places, right? Like Burma, tough. Uh, but people are incredibly resilient and they themselves are the optimists and the warriors and they understand that authoritarianism is not the wave of the future just because they understand where the energy is at the grassroots. People aren't taking to the streets wanting a Putin-style government or a Chinese-style government. People aren't out there demanding that they be ruled by corrupt crooks. It's exactly the opposite, right? And this is what dictators are afraid of. And of course, being strong men, they uh, put out a veneer of strength. Uh, when Xi Jinping met Vladimir Putin recently, she said, you know, the biggest changes in 100 years are happening and we're driving them. That's what they want their people to think, that they're kind of glorious heroes. Uh, but in fact, uh, they are most afraid of their own people. Uh, they are terrified by the concepts that we take for granted in the West, that politicians work for citizens, that you can be elected into office and elected right out of it if you underperform and fail to deliver, right? This is why none of these leaders submit themselves to real elections. And it should give us a lot of hope uh, that people all over the world, including in tough countries, places like Africa, still think democracy is by far the best system of government. When you think back over the, what, is it five years now that you've been president? About five years? Six. Six years. You know, there are a couple sort of anecdotal stories of people you've met in your travels for IRI, just moments where you really thought to yourself, wow, we're, we're making a difference when you, I don't know, maybe when you were on the EOM in Nigeria, time in Georgia, time in Taiwan. Just, are there any personal stories from people that you've heard on your travels um, that really are sort of inspiring to you? There's so many. Uh the then Vice President of Colombia, who's a great American ally, one of the most successful countries in Latin America, said I wouldn't be here without IRI. I went to a women's campaign school. When I was thinking about getting into politics, I didn't know if I could do it. And you convinced me that I could and gave me, equipped me to win and to govern. Uh, a man in Nigeria, we had worked to create, uh, uh, kind of to promote disabled rights, disability rights. Uh, there are something like 80 million people suffering disabilities in Nigeria, which is a huge teeming country. And we had worked uh, with all the political parties, including the ruling one, uh, to create disability uh, chapters. Uh, and this man just said, it's been a life changer, game changer for me, that the leaders of my party and the leaders of my country understand that I also have rights. Uh, visiting Mongolia, the 30th anniversary of IRI's work in Mongolia. 
and the team cut a video with every former prime minister of Mongolia saying Mongolia would not be a democracy without IRI. We literally couldn't have done it without you, right? Uh, the ambassador of Taiwan, where I was on a stage with her and she said, I was saying, I was trying to be diplomatic. I said, you know, there are a lot of countries, a lot of places that need help, but Taiwan is Asia's freest, most successful democracy. It doesn't need IRI's help. She said, no, we'll always need IRI's help because the work of democracy is never done. Uh, I could go on and on, but it's really powerful to hear it from uh, people around the world, that we are a lifeline for them and have made a lot of their success possible. They're the heroes here. Indeed, they are. You know, you our founding was based on this idealism of President Reagan, but you also worked for Senator McCain, who was our chairman for a long time. Uh, John McCain had, the, there was the famous line, you could either look at the world that it was either going to be darkest before dawn or darkest before it became pitch black. So just reflecting on Senator McCain and his fight for freedom, and he was a huge fighter for freedom. How do you take some of the experiences you had working for Senator McCain and apply that to your work here at IRI? McCain is an interesting case study because he was a bit of a spoiled son of an admiral flyboy who then had this life-changing experience being deprived of his liberty in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam for five and a half years, including a couple years in solitary confinement. And he came out of that a changed man and just said, I understand what it means to be deprived of liberty. I understand what it means to be an American, to be live in a free country, because you don't get it until that's taken away from you. It's taken away from you and you have nothing. You literally have no rights. Uh, so he, uh, including when I traveled with him for many years, uh, was always drawn to people who were fighting tyranny and oppression and injustice because he, although he was a famous and powerful guy, you know, he was the Republican nominee for president. He was one of the most senior senators. He always identified with the little guy who was out there fighting big malign forces. And he also read a lot of history, uh, always reading and understood not that sort of the arc of liberty always bends towards justice or the arc of the world, but uh, that in fact, good people sometimes have to stand up and fight and be very courageous to make great sacrifices for what they believe in. And he saw people doing that all over the world, as you say, from Georgia to Cambodia, all over the world. Uh, and it was very powerful, the sense that he always brought home from these trips, which is that America was better off. American national security was a lot stronger when small d Democrats were making progress and building successful and effective countries. It was countries that were not run by Democrats that were the great threats to America that produced conflict, that produced violent extremism, that produced mass migration. And so he understood very clearly the connection between kind of liberty and freedom at home and living in a stable world that was peaceful and democratic. That, that that's something we'd like to hear more from today from our politicians. A lot of them don't draw that line anymore. You know, what is the Churchill line? I'm going to misquote him. He said, democracy is a messy, terrible form of government, but it's the best that we have. And that's true. Our democracies, especially these established Western democracies, our own democracies, our own democracy here is very loud at times. But loudness does not mean it doesn't work. But the autocrats from Putin to Xi sometimes take advantage of our loudness and our our ability to have free speech and try and use that against us. Do you think that is successful? And, and how would you 
you were to go to a sort of emerging democracy and say, well, your democracy is big and loud and the Chinese or Putin use that against you, what would you respond? How would you how would you talk to them about our own democracy vis-a-vis uh, -vis these autocrats? It's a great question. So the U.S. isn't a perfect country or a perfect democracy. We've been working on it here for 247 years, right? Work in progress. We've made a lot of progress. We have much more inclusive politics than we ever did in the past, but we always have more work to do. The reason we care about strong and effective institutions is because we're not for one man or one woman rule or one party rule or whatever it may be, right? Uh, democracy can reset and refresh itself through political change, through free and fair elections. It derives legitimacy from civic participation, right? In an autocracy, citizens do not participate in politics and government. They are excluded. Politics and government is the realm of a small group of self-selected strong men. Occasionally, there are strong women in there, too. More often than not, they're strong men who are not representative at all of the population. And I could name a number of African countries. Uh, Cameroon, to take one, where a leader has been in office for almost as long as I've been alive, right? And the median age in sub-Saharan Africa is 19 years old. So an old leader who's been in power for many decades is not at all representative of his country. Uh, so look, on democracy, uh, it's messy, it's imperfect. It's not designed to produce perfect ideal outcomes. It's designed to prevent mob rule and it's designed to prevent tyranny. It prevents civil war by creating a peaceful political arena in which citizen differences can be resolved through political parties and political leaders and through representative institutions, separation of powers, checks and balances, rule of law. Uh, that's why we care. We care about having a structure of life that is peaceful, that gives us a voice, and that can take the country forward. And although democracies are imperfect, they have a much stronger track record of doing that than autocracies. I mean, just to give you one example, if you live in a democracy, you are on average six times richer than someone who lives in a dictatorship. I mean, there are lots of other measures around violence and other things we could say. But democracies are on average six times more prosperous than autocracies because they provide inclusive growth that actually gives citizen a stake. Whereas in an autocracy, a dictator rules basically to promote non-inclusive growth so that he and a small circle of elites can enrich themselves at public expense. There are lots of other reasons we care about democracy, but it actually does deliver better. Do you think when Putin or Xi, when they try and use, you know, American or European images in their propaganda, do you think that their people know it's propaganda? No, because these countries, especially China, go to great, great lengths to control the information environment. So if you live in China and you Google, you know, you can't use Google in China, but if you use the Chinese equivalent, Tiananmen Square, nothing comes up, zero, right? Uh, some of these uh, cabinet ministers who have been sacked for corruption and imprisoned, if you, if you look up their names on the internet, they disappear. It's like they didn't exist. So the government, it's like Animal Farm. It's like 1984, rather. The government is censoring and controlling information. Uh, they promote very anti-American propaganda. It's been very striking to look at Hamas's war against Israel and the reaction of China and Russia, which is not to condemn Hamas or to stand with Israel. It's to attack America. They are running full-bore propaganda campaigns, reinforcing each other's propaganda to attack America and American leadership at a time when our ally is under assault. So it just kind of shows you what really motivates them. 
uh, which is to attack us, which is try to tell, kind of spin a yarn for their citizens in countries in Russia and China, that somehow their leaders know better and are better. Uh, if citizens had access to the truth, uh, of course, they would draw very different conclusions. So I feel like I've already asked you about, you know, you being a, a happy warrior and things that you're up, you know, what you're optimistic about. But, you know, there is just a lot of negative news out there. Um, if you could give us a little bit of a, not a stump speech, but a motivational speech about why we should be more optimistic with all the grim news that is going on in the world. What would you tell my mother about why we should be optimistic about democracy and the state of the world today? So I would say that there are historically more democracies today almost than there have ever been. Many of them obviously have underperformed, underdelivered. Uh, where they have failed, it's not beca been because democracy was not preferable to autocracy. It's been that democracy didn't deliver. It didn't actually work, right? Maybe they had some elections, but then people took power, abused that power, abused institutions, uh, ran those countries into the ground, uh, etc. So I'd say this. We have more allies around the world, including in closed countries, including in places like Iran and Venezuela that are run by dictators. They are they are pro-American and they are allies of the United States because they care about freedom. And it is wrong to look at a country like China or Russia or Iran or so many others and to conclude that those countries are enemies because their people dislike us. In fact, their leaders have made choices uh, to set themselves against us, but their people, if free to choose, I mean, you had people in the streets of Hong Kong, you had almost 2 million people in the streets of Hong Kong in 2019 waving American flags. You've also had this in Iran with the protests. You've had the Iranian regime try to uh, use symbols to get its citizens to say, down with America, down with Israel. And Iranians often will chant back, no, we're not interested in your wars and your terrorist sponsorships, right? We want to live in a peaceful, normal country. So we have allies all over the world. Uh, free people, when they are successful, do not invade their neighbors, uh, do not cause a third of their populations to want to flee, like a third of Venezuela's population has fled, as that country has enjoyed terrible leadership that's really driven it into the ground. Uh, democracies do not produce the kind of violent extremism that's now flourishing, for instance, in the Sahel in Africa, where the state literally doesn't extend beyond the capital. No one is touched by governance. Young men tell pollsters that the reason they become jihadists is because it gives them something to do. It gives them a job and a paycheck, right? The government is absent in these countries. So uh, we have allies all over the world. Everybody aspires to freedom and justice and dignity. And the world is safer and better for America when we stand with those people, right? Last question, and thank you. Any reflections on small but mighty Estonia and on Kaya Kallas? So she's the prime minister of Estonia. She's been very principled and resolute and steely in making very clear that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not only illegal, but unacceptable. Estonia, I think, has perhaps given the most per capita or some of the highest per capita assistance in Europe uh, to Ukraine, military and civilian aid. And the Baltic states are great canaries in the coal mine for the kind of world order we live in because they are small countries. They cannot defend themselves. 
Uh, they raced to join NATO as soon as they were liberated from the Soviet empire. They liberated themselves, by the way. It wasn't the American army that marched in and liberated them. They all took to the streets as the Soviet Union was teetering and freed themselves from uh, the chains of Soviet tyranny. So they liberated themselves. Estonian has built, I think it's the leading example of e-government. I think 98% of government services are it's accessible incredible. online that essentially... When you interact with the government, you're doing it through a web browser or an app. I feel like work. we could ask the Estonians to maybe help us with our DMV. Yes. I don't know about you, but. But so it's a great example of a country. I mean, it was trapped in the Soviet empire and it's leapfrogged to be a pioneer in digital democracy. So it offers great examples for us. Uh, and it's a reminder to us in America of the value of having allies. We have dozens and do dozens of great allied countries around the world, and they make us stronger. And Russia and China can never compete with that. Russia and China essentially do not have allies, right? One thing that distinguishes America in the great power competition is that we have an extraordinary set of alliances, including with countries like Estonia. Anything you want to add as we close out? Just that I'm really excited about By the People, so uh, we'll have to get some more people here in front of the microphone <laughs> to talk to you. Uh, I know you'll be hearing from people from all over the world. I mean, I think the most interesting people uh, for your audience will be people fighting for freedom. You know, some of our friends who are taking on uh, really extraordinary challenges and dedicating their lives to standing up to authoritarian forces in their home countries. Very inspiring. They are indeed. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks. Well, I'd had high hopes for this first episode of By the People. And Prime Minister Callis and our very own Dan Twining certainly did not disappoint. Thank you to our guests for their really interesting insights and to all of you for listening to this first episode of By the People, the new podcast from the International Republican Institute. We'll be back next month with another exciting, I promise, exciting episode highlighting the work of freedom fighters from around the world. You can find By the People on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us for updates on the latest episodes. For By the People, I'm your host, Antonia Ferrier, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. This has been an IRI Media production. If you've enjoyed this first episode, please leave us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.